Mortimer, episode 14. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Now, who'd have thought that this story had become a nationwide phenomena? Ooh-wee! <laughs> that would be a true fictional miracle. Back upstairs, Percy tucked the bottle under his arm. Remembering John's words, Percy crossed the lawn. The guests had finished their main course and were milling about drinking punch and lemonade. The sun had set and the evening was romantic with candlelight and lighting bugs. Suddenly, Percy's eyes fell upon the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. His heart stuttered in his chest and he tripped over his own feet. She was sitting at a table with an older woman who Percy suspected to be her grandmother and a couple who were likely to be her parents. He recovered his balance, and remembering Mrs. Dixon's teaching, he straightened his spine and continued toward the punch bowl. His green eyes, however, did not break away from the girl. As Percy watched, he saw his father saunter up to the smoking man. Percy knew this gig. Jeb would woo the stranger, talking about the farm, the benefits of smoking tobacco, and then lure him into a free sample. If they were lucky, the man would be interested, landing the family another buyer. Percy arrived at the punch table and gazed across it. There was an awful lot of gin, and there was no way he'd be able to pour it all into a glass, plus the punch needed to dilute the taste. Then an idea struck. He grinned widely. That old cook of an uncle was right. The party was drab. Percy grinned. He looked to the left and then to the right, and then he leaned forward. Mortimer was bent down by request so that his ear could be closer to the lips of Mrs. Meeker, who grabbed his collar and turned to her daughter. Darling, did you hear that this dear sweet man saved a child in the people's market? For a rapid skunk had climbed into one of George's shipping boxes. Mrs. Peabody had recovered from her outburst in the kitchen and was now delivering dessert to the guests. Overhearing the woman's delighted shrieks, she paused by the table to take a listen. A rabid skunk? Mortimer suppressed the urge to bellow, for the question was stupid indeed. I do not rem- Our dear sweet Mortimer, so modest. Mrs. Peabody swooped in and began placing desserts in front of the family. A half here, homemade eclairs, hot off the oven, and vanilla custard. The custard had been a last-ditch stroke of brilliance on Mrs. Peabody's part, for the ice cream truck had never arrived. Thankfully, they already had quite a large supply of custard, since it was one of Mortimer's staple foods. Custard! Mortimer perked up with interest. Did you get bitten? A young lady's doe eyes widened with concern. Hardly. 
Mortimer cried, and referring to the child in the store, "'The beast didn't stand a chance!' The girl glanced over at her father in approval. "'Oh, how brave you are, Mr. Iscariot!' "'Mortimer here is one of the finest young men in Georgetown, if you ask me.' Mrs. Peabody tried to place an affectionate hand on Mortimer's arm, but he slid out of her reach. "'Capital!' the father said, smoking a pipe. "'The mayor should give you an award.' "'I wholeheartedly agree,' Mortimer spoke with feeling. Jeb appeared by Mortimer's side, an incandescent grin on his face. "'What do we have here?' He gulped down the pink beverage and winked at the table. "'My, this is the best punch I've ever tasted. Mrs. Peabody is one sneaky dame. Just don't let my wife have any.' He swallowed the rest down in two large gulps. Wiping his arm across his mouth, he then focused his attention to the man at the table. I see you smoking there. Now I've got some tobacco. That'll knock your socks off. Frank had invited himself to the party. The butler welcomed him with a sceptical eye and took his coat and hat. I must inform you, sir, that dinner has already been served, but dessert is being delivered now, after which tea and light refreshments will be served in the lounge. "'Thanks, fella.' Frank slapped a hand on Neville's shoulder, turned and welcomed himself into the mansion. He spotted Mortimer immediately upon entering the twinkling garden. He hadn't seen the old cook since he had gotten himself kicked out of the church. At present, Mortimer was making some sort of a speech to a pack of women, who, to Frank's surprise, looked interested. Wishing he'd thought to bring a date himself, Frank immediately went in search for his friends.' "'Everything's going smoothly,' Mrs. Peabody observed with approval. "'Shh! Don't say that,' Mrs. Dixon scolded. "'You'll put a malediction on to evening.' "'Oh, Elizabeth, you don't really believe in curses. "'At this point, I'm willing to believe in whatever it takes to get Mortimer married.' "'Well, look over there. "'He seems to be doing quite well with the ladies. "'He's doing wonderfully.' "'And Percy!' Mrs. Peabody exclaimed. Dearest Elizabeth, I hardly recognise him. Such a change. It's smoke and mirrors, I'm afraid, Mrs. Dixon sighed. After this evening is over, he'll go back to the half-wit he was before. You don't think your lessons will stand? He's memorised several key phrases. We've corrected a dozen vocabulary words, but without more extensive training, I do not believe Percy will keep people fooled for long. Not knowing he was being talked about, Percy puffed his chest out proudly and finally decided to go and introduce himself to the girl. He had consumed about six glasses of freshly spiked punch and was feeling quite brave. She was no longer with her parents. In fact, she was sitting alone in the starlight, and Percy did not want to miss out on this perfect and private opportunity to make a good first impression. Halfway toward the silver spoon siren, Percy noticed another man had beaten him to the punch. The girl must have known him because her face lit up when she saw him, and she stood to offer him a companionable hug. "'Baby, you look fabulous,' Frank observed, looking around for Lily Lou's father. "'Oh, at least I look that way. Tonight has been absolutely dreadful. I'm so glad you showed up,' Lily Lou suppressed the urge to cry. Did Cindy come tonight? She said she'd rather eat live bugs than watch me throw myself all over Mortimer. 
Lily Lou gulped down another glass of pink punch. She was feeling rather vulnerable, which apparently was making her a bit more loose-tongued than usual. It's just not fair. Look at him, surrounded by ladies. Frank glanced over at Mortimer, whose finger was pointed to the sky as he approached the climax of his story. Don't give him another minute of your thoughts. Frank tilted Lily Lou's head up with his knuckle. You're the loveliest dame at the party tonight. Oh, you're just saying that, Lily Lou pouted. Why, Herbert has barely spoken two words to me. Well, to be honest, doll, you can hardly blame him. Frank pulled out a garden chair, and they sat down together at the table. Why? What did I do? You've hardly put in any effort at keeping his attention. Frank lit a cigarette. That, and it's not good for a man's sanity to be constantly pursuing a dame who's dead set on someone else. Lily Lou lowered her eyes. Come on, baby. Herbert's not the man for you. Well, who are you suggested is, then? I'm available. Frank grinned widely. Oh, Frank, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're seeing Cindy. Mrs. Longhorn approached the two, her face set in disapproving lines. Lily Lou? Your father has something he wishes to speak with you about. Lady Lou felt a sinking in her chest. It was nice to talk with you. Once they'd taken several steps away from Frank, Lily Lou's mom shot her a sharp look. It is hardly proper for you to be alone with that man. Oh, mother, we were just talking. There are hundreds of people around. Come over here and talk with Mildred. She's just completed another dazzling needlepoint. She's even brought it to show everyone. Ah! Baby, I'm three hours late. We just got me a quick delivery and I'll be off for the rest of the weekend. Morris cranked the wheel to the truck. Sugar, darling, come on. Sissy hungry for some love. The woman crawled across the truck bench toward him. Hey, watch it. The steering wheel jerked with surprise. Careful, you're gonna make me crash. He overcorrected a turn as his passenger nibbled on his earlobe. <sighs> I want me some sauté chicken. What do you think I am, a butcher? I don't got no chicken. I'll have to settle for something else then. Morris cursed his wretched luck as she lasciviously assaulted him. The boss's son was supposed to deliver the truck of ice cream to the party. It was a way for the parlor to network with the rich folk of Georgetown. But, quite naturally, the freeloading barnacle had ditched his duty at the last minute, meaning Morris could only get to the delivery after his shift ended, after he was practically begged by a lowly factory boy. He was supposed to be taking Sissy to the country for a romantic getaway, not driving a stupid ice cream truck to some stupid rich person's party. Sissy changed tactics, and Morris swerved the truck again. Then he saw something that made his stomach lurch. Damn! Before he could slow down, they swerved by the parked patrol car. What is it, baby? The woman propped herself up and looked at him curiously. Get in the back. What do you mean? Her cherry-painted lips tilted down into a pout. Cops! Morris swerved the ice cream truck to the side of the road. In panic, the blonde leapt over the back seat and covered herself with a blanket. The police car was now tailing Morris, and the driver was flagging them to pull over. Not again! Morris complied reluctantly. He angled the steering wheel so that it turned toward the side of the road. He hit the brakes. Oh, don't you say a word, you hear me? I hear you. Shh, Morris hissed. After parking the police vehicle, 
The cop approached the ice cream truck in the darkness, and Morris suppressed a growl as he lowered the window. Good evening, officer. And then the ship began to tilt, but no. It was with a stroke of brilliance and intuition that surpassed any previous moment's skill that had ever occurred at sea. I noted the position of Orion at a moment's glance and made a dazzlingly ingenious correction. What happened next? A girl with lily-white skin and a pixie haircut grasped her friend's hand. The thunder crashed and then a bolt of lightning followed like a dancer. Mortimer suddenly lowered his voice. It was black as night once the lightning had gone. The ebony sea fiercely tossed its tendrils against her mistress. But then my correction took hold. She righted herself, only to plunge straight into a wave the size of Poseidon's mermaid queen. Oh! Mortimer's fingers shot into the air. And we triumphed. Oh, wonderful! There was applause. Mortimer, dearest... I've got to introduce you to someone before they leave. Ah, oh, the sad response from Mortimer's entourage followed him as Mrs. Dixon pulled him away from the girls. John Adams took another hit from his half-empty flask and watched as the nanny removed his nephew from the pack of single dames. Nice tactic, he saluted her with his flask. He knew what she was doing. She was letting Mortimer out in small bits and pieces. If he was permitted to wholly let loose, everyone would see what a total and complete ass he really was. The red-headed young man was standing across the lawn with his hick parents. He glanced over at John now and held up his cup of punch, smiling wildly. John gave him the thumbs up. He couldn't help but feel a warm jolt of kinship as the kid nodded and jerked his head toward where the wine cellar was. John made a gesture of approval, and in response the boy excused himself from his party and snuck off to select a refill from Mrs. Peabody's formerly Puritan punch. Three young ladies passed John's table giggling. I heard Captain Mortimer sail the ship that he built with his own hands. That is why he spends so much time drawing in the park, her friend added with realisation. Yes, and I heard that he'd sailed one of his handcrafted ships to Newfoundland for government business on three separate occasions. Is that why he's so difficult to understand? The third asked, because he knows top-secret government business. Mortimer is an ignoramus, John Adams spat. The girls turned to look at him sharply. How dare you speak of Mr. Oscariot in such a manner, the first chastised. Why, if you were half the man Mortimer was, it would be an utter miracle. The two other girls giggled and pulled their friend away from John Adams. Balbusiotic tabloid, he slurred at their backs. Then quite suddenly, John's mood shifted. His grimace changed and his moustache turned upward as he saw Mrs. Dixon's Achilles heel. Mrs. Iscariot came out of the mansion and looked around. She'd heard a rumour that there was a magical red potion at the baptism and she was determined to get a taste. Eugene had given her a potion the first time they met and it had given her the ability to read minds. There was little she loved more than a magical red potion. Incensed, she wandered through the crowd of people. She donned a long satin robe for the ceremony and felt quite lovely. It dragged in the grass as she walked. She ignored the looks from the guests as she wound her way between tables. Music played, sounding like heaven's choir. She hummed a lullaby to herself as she moved, seeing the diamonds sparkle and twinkle across the lawn. Then she saw it in the distance. 
glowing like a glorious pink lily. She walked with passion, and once she arrived at the table, she poured herself a glass. "'It's time to move the party inside!' Mrs. Dixon hadn't seen the mistress enter the garden and was instead focused on the party's timetable. She turned to the butler who stood at her right. "'Neville, is the dining-room table set up for tea and coffee?' Uh, "'Just don't let anyone actually sit at the table.' Neville refused to meet Mrs. Dixon's gaze. She leaned around him, trying to get him to look at her. "'Neville? Neville!' Her head bobbed around in an attempt to obstruct his visual path. I need you to tell me that everything is all right with the table. Refreshments and light hors d'oeuvres will be served inside if you would like to make your way into the lounge, Neville proclaimed quite loudly. Mrs. Dixon snapped upright and forced a smile on her face as their guests acknowledged Neville's announcement by getting up and pushing in their chairs. You are going to hear about this tomorrow, Mrs. Dixon admonished beneath her breath. Candles filled the mansion. People gasped in awe as they entered from the back garden. A phonograph filled the mansion with the sounds of Fletcher Henderson. Cindy had abandoned her boycott upon seeing Lily Lou shamelessly fawning over Mortimer. This was the biggest party of the season, after all. She had arrived halfway through dessert and had not actually spoken to Lily Lou. The dessert was delicious, the punch out of this world, and she was having the time of her life chatting with Louise and Mary. Frank had not left Lily Lou and her parents' side for the past hour. Herbert was now publicly sulking. He threw back another cup of punch with exasperation and followed the crowd into the house. Give her the cold shoulder, Frank had said. Play hard to get. Herbert glared at his friend, who had moved in on Lily at Herbert's absence. Cheeky bastard. He looked about him as the throng of wireists moved forward, pushing him down the hallway. This is the best party I've ever attended. He heard a voice cry ebulliently from behind. Mrs. Longhorn was hanging on her mother-in-law's arm as the two women giggled savagely. They were clearly drunk and Herbert wanted to know where they had found the booze. I haven't had this much fun since my Leo was a boy. Leo, darling... Mrs. Longhorn held the pink liquid out to her husband. You must try some of this punch. Some of it sloshed over the rim as she pushed her cup toward him. The red liquid dripped unnoticed down her arm. I'll see you in the lounge, old man. Frank slapped Mr. Longhorn on the back and followed the other gentleman into the cigar room, as it was coined by Mr. Iscariot, who had at one time quite a close working relationship with Cuba for the purpose of importing cigars. I'm sure that the sugar has quite gotten to your pretty little head. Mr. Longhorn stepped between his mother and wife and positioned an arm each. Herbert's eyes widened incredulously at Mr. Longhorn's explanation of their behavior. I'm glad you're enjoying yourselves. I've always wished for my two favorite women to get along. We're getting along perfectly. The elder Mrs. Longhorn wagged her finger at him. Good, Mr. Longhorn nodded. I'm going to have a smoke with the boys then. You two go to the lounge and have yourselves a little snack and some more of that punch you like so much. None of the Longhorns paid any attention to Lily Lou, who chose that moment to slip away from the crowd. Of course, Mr. Longhorn's wife slobbered. Herbert rolled his eyes and followed the men into the cigar room, where a curious-looking fellow had set up a table displaying tobacco tins. Mortimer, who had been forced by his nanny to participate in the manly activities post-supper, followed him.
Hear ye, hear ye, Jeb announced, pleased to see the room filled with wealthy tobacco-loving men. Boy, that nanny knew how to draw a crowd. What's all this about? a voice asked. I refuse to be solicited to, another declared. A portly fellow who Jeb learned went by the name of Bartholomew harumphed before plopping down in a chair. This was Jeb's moment, the chance to share his tobacco with the world. He'd taken a risk. He'd mixed human feces together and dumped it all over his crop, and in this room sat some of the wealthiest men in the South. I brought y'all some prime tobacco, grown in the finest fields of West Virginia. Mart, since you're the guest of honor at this here fine occasion, you can have the first tin. He chucked a tobacco tin at Mortimer, who stared at it in horror as it flew straight toward his face and bounced off his forehead. You're supposed to catch that, a man offered helpfully. An assault on my person shall not be borne, Mortimer pushed up from his chair in anger. Settle down there, old buddy, I ain't mean no harm. Jeb picked up the discarded tin and slipped it into Mortimer's pocket. We'll just be a-putting that there for safekeeping. Then he turned to his audience, his special blend of fair ground tobacco clutched in his manure-stained hands. Now then their tins is airtight to preserve the loot. Your woman can wash them, soak them, and your treasure will be secure. This tobacco will last ten times longer than a Cuban. And if you're not satisfied, your money back. Then he turned to the rest of the room. Who's a-smoking? These free samples? A man asked. First tin on me. We'll make ourselves a deal for the rest. Some of the men approached Jeb, excited about his offer for free tobacco. Others pulled out their own cigars, Cubans, of course, the most expensive and sought-after tobacco in the country. While the men smoked with Jeb in the cigar room, the women gathered in the front lounge. Some of the guests, however, chose this transition to take their leave. Mrs. Dixon stood smugly at the door and waved goodnight to the Albrights. She took a satisfied breath and surveyed her surroundings. She knew that Mrs. Albright was disappointed that Mortimer had not made an ass of himself that evening. But as a concession, Mrs. Albright had also admitted out loud that Mrs. Dixon threw the best party that the South had ever seen. Remembering the elder Mrs. Longhorn's racist and disdainful comments, Mrs. Dixon planted her hands on her hips. "'Teach her to judge a person by their colour. That old bag is having a time of her life.' Even better than showing an old rich bag a thing or two, Mrs. Dixon was seeing the first glimpses of her success, for she had actually received Mr. Albright's card with a verbal invitation for Mortimer to come to their house the next day. In fact, this was one of several cards Mrs. Dixon had tucked into her breast. If luck would have it, Mrs. Dixon would be back in Jamaica in time for Christmas. In the lounge, Bobby Sue found herself surrounded by well-dressed and refined women. Particularly fascinating to her was an old baroness with silver hair piled high atop her head and pinned with sparkling barrettes and clips. About her neck was a glistening choker which reminded Bobby Sue of the sparkling rocks in the quarry on the edge of town. She wondered if the old woman had actually gotten the flecks of glitter from those quarry rocks. She held her tongue as the women chattered back and forth. Such a shame that she had to rustle up a long-lost niece in order to acquire an invitation to this party, the quarry rock lady was saying, 
Indeed, yes. Truly, this offence should have been reserved for those of us who actually have daughters, her compatriots sniffed, her rather large nostrils stretching with the gesture. Then a woman, in a deep auburn get-up, leaned forward. I heard Mrs. Iscariot made an appearance. This caught the attention of the ladies. Ellie? But I thought she was in the infirmary. If that's your polite way of saying lunipin, then you heard right, another piped up. The lunipin? A younger woman to the right of the quarry lady was shocked. Oh, I, I, I'm sure that can't be true. She wanders around looking for some fellow named Eugene. The younger woman angled her head. Eugene who? Well, what I want to know is why she isn't asking for her husband. I smell a scandal, said the woman with the gaping nostrils. Indeed, a scandal in this house? Six sets of eyes shot up to see a woman decadently dressed. Her hair was combed meticulously, her eyes gleamed, and her head was angled with refined austerity. In her hand was a glass of pink punch. Her other hand held an exotic and expensive fur at her hip. Ellie! Stunned, Bobby Sue jumped up and wrapped her arms around her sister-in-law. She felt dreadfully sorry, for she was sure that Ellie was embarrassed by the women's negative comments about her. Mrs. Stixon said you were out of town. Indeed, I am not. Mrs. Iscariot displayed genuine shock, but her countenance quickly shifted, and she smiled softly. Oh, Bobby, it is good to see you. It's been too long. Millie entered the room carrying a tray of beverages. There were several small groupings of women about the lounge. However, one grouping in particular drew her attention. The mouths of the women collectively hung ajar. The room began to quiet as more of the guests noticed the object of attention. Millie took another step closer, for confusion seemed to have muddled her senses. She believed that she was looking at Mrs. Iscariot, which, of course, was impossible. Mrs. Dixon came in behind Millie, prepared to berate her for not delivering drinks. However, sensing something awry, Mrs. Dixon scanned the room looking for any signs of disaster. When she laid eyes upon Mrs. Iscariot, her heart screeched to a halt. Mrs. Dixon could already see the newspaper headlines. Last Iscariot heir surrenders once great name to eternity, survived by Nanny. We must get her out of here. But Mrs. Dixon, Millie shook her head in a whisper, something's different. Mrs. Dixon took a closer look, and what she saw thrust her back five years or more in time. Tears suddenly sprung from the corner of her eyes. This woman did not resemble the Mrs. Iscariot who had been wandering the halls of the mansion, half-dressed, confused, and mumbling about nonsense. This was the Mrs. Iscariot of the past, remarkable, admired, and refined. By some sort of miracle, she stood in the centre of the drawing-room, enchanting the guests at Mortimer's coming-out party, as if nothing had changed, as if she'd never gone insane. Orange sauntered over to the parked ice-cream truck, glad to be stretching his legs, but also rather nervous for the encounter. He straightened his waistband and put a hand on the police baton at his hip as he approached the open window. "'Good evening, officer.' The driver was sweating bullets. Indication of culpability. Orange made a mental note. Do you know why I pulled you over? The man smiled. Come on, mister. I have a wife and kids at home and the shift went late. How about we just pretend this never happened? Orange cleared his throat. <clears> throat> I'm afraid we can't do that, sir. He tried to suppress the tremble in his voice. I need some sort of identification. Maybe I can sweeten the deal a little. 
Was he referring to the truckload of ice cream? Orange was confused. You do realize that bribery is an arrestable offense? Orange threatened, hoping that he wouldn't have to actually arrest this fella. Who's talking about bribery? The man put up both hands. I ain't got no money for you anyway. But then he paused, lowered his voice. But I do got a sweet dame if you're lonely. Hey! came a muffled protest. The man coughed loudly as his seat jerked forward. Orange narrowed his eyes. Identification, please, Orange demanded again, but with more conviction. All right, all right. The man dug around in his pants before revealing a wallet. He presented Orange with a damp and sweaty card. This is a membership card to the Methodist Church. Oh, oops, <laughs> wrong card. It also says Sister Agnes on it. Orange felt his pulse quicken with anxiety, but he was determined not to fail at patrol work. How did you come to possess this card? The man squirmed around in his seat. Hey, man, look, I don't mean no harm. See here, I have a truck full of frozen cream. It's melting by the minute. How about we just laugh this off as a little mishap? You were driving recklessly, Orange protested. Getting used to the suspension, that's all. The man was becoming increasingly agitated. I'm going to have to take you downtown. Orange decided, boy, oh boy, was his boss going to be proud of him. Identity theft, reckless driving, bribery. Come on, the man slammed his fists into the steering wheel. You can drive the truck in front of me to the station, or you can take a ride in the back of the patrol vehicle. Your choice. Orange prayed the man would drive himself there, but no fishy business. If you go anywhere besides straight to the precinct, I'll see to it that you spend a fair share of time behind bars. Oh, this is an outrage, the man bellowed. Come quietly, or I'll add on resisting arrest. Orange was enjoying himself now. He felt smug. Morris, a muffled voice cried out. Gun it! The engine roared, and to Orange's distress, the driver grasped the wheel and shouted, Over my dead body! Gravel sputtered beneath the tires, and the ice cream truck shot off into the darkness. Damn it! Orange coughed into the dust. He turned and ran back to his squad car. Learn more at www.mortimabook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym. Audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.